Do you let your circumstances dictate your attitude toward God? If you are down and out, are you quick to blame? Or when you're riding high, do you find the time to give thanks? Well, a rich tax collector and a blind beggar both had specific needs until they met Jesus. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Our message of salvation series continues today with a sermon titled, Blind Man, Beggar Man, Thief. Today, Jesus talks with two very different people from opposite ends of society and shows them what's missing in their lives. Last time we were together, Phil, we learned what it meant to be born again. This time we find out that there's more to salvation than just being reborn by the Spirit. What else does God do in us or require of us? Well, Mark, today we'll be looking at the response that we need to make to God's gracious work. And that response basically is faith in Jesus Christ and repentance for our sin. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us when we are born again. The Spirit gives us the gift of faith so that we believe in Jesus and also the gift of repentance so that we see our sin and turn away from it. The focus of today's message is found in the examples of the blind man and a tax collector. What should we know about them going in? Well, Mark, we're uh, taking a passage from the Gospel of Luke, and this is something Luke loves to do, give us two for the price of one. Two different characters that are showing us two different aspects of salvation. As we look at the blind man and as we consider the tax collector, we'll see two men who are very needy but in two different ways. One of these men becomes a wonderful example of saving faith, and the other man is a wonderful example of what it really means to repent and to turn away from sin. Two for the price of one today, Mark. Great. Thank you, Phil. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 18, verse 35, and let's listen to God's Word for us today. Tonight we discover that being born again is only the beginning. There's a whole new life which follows the new birth and leads finally to spiritual maturity. The way the Christian begins this new life is by looking to Christ, that is, faith, and turning away from sin, and that is repentance. That's the proper biblical terminology. The Christian life begins with faith and repentance. And when it comes to faith and repentance, theologians sometimes wonder which has the priority, which comes first, either in actual time or in logic, repenting or believing. Of course, the answer is that faith and repentance are so closely connected that they cannot be separated. It is impossible to repent without believing or to believe without repenting. This is the way John Murray once described it. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Then he explained why this is so. Remember that faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it, and such hatred of sin involves repentance, which consists essentially in turning from sin unto God, 
Or again, if we remember that repentance is turning from sin unto God, the turning to God implies faith. Faith in the mercy of God is revealed in Christ, and therefore saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Now, the meaning of faith unto salvation and repentance unto life can be illustrated from two episodes in the life of Jesus. The first is a story about faith. It concerns a blind man, a beggar man, who looked to Christ for his salvation. And the second is a story about repentance. It concerns a thief who turned away from his sins and unto God. Remember, faith and repentance always go together, and thus the blind man's faith, as we shall see, included an element of repentance. And as for the thief, he never would have repented unless he had also believed. Placed side by side in the Gospel of Luke, these two stories show how faith and repentance belong together. And what I am saying is very simple, that if you are to be saved... You must confess your sins and receive God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus met this blind man and this thief while he was walking along the Jericho Road. The first encounter took place on his way into the city where a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. We see this in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 and following. And when the man heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, this blind man could not see Jesus, of course. But there were several things he could see. The first was his need. He needed sight. Through his eyes, he could only see Darkness. And when Jesus asked him what he needed, this is verse 41, his answer was very simple, Lord, I want to see. As a result of his blindness, the man also needed money. Day after day, he sat by the side of the road begging. I mean, what else could he do? Since he was blind, he had no way to earn a steady income. And out of the misery of his desperate need, the blind man cried out for salvation, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. That word mercy suggests that he could see his spiritual need as well as he could see his physical needs. Mercy is the love of God for sinners, the grace which he uses to rescue us from our lost and sorry condition. And perhaps when this blind man asked for mercy, he was asking for something more than his sight. He was begging for his salvation. Remember that salvation is God's answer to the problem of humanity, and the first step is admitting that you yourself have this problem. The problem is sin. This blind man who sat by the side of the road saw his need for a Savior, and it challenges us to consider whether we see our need for a Savior as clearly as he did. The second thing the blind man saw was who Jesus was. He called him Jesus, Son of David. It's a title that doesn't appear very often in the Gospels, but it would have been familiar to any Jew who knew the Old Testament. It meant that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior God had always promised to send. And in those days, the traditional Jewish synagogue prayers included this petition. It's a petition asking God to have mercy on the kingdom of the house of David, of the Messiah, 
of thy righteousness. By calling Jesus the Son of David, this blind man was acknowledging him as the Savior. And not only that, he not only recognized Jesus as the Savior, but he also received him as his Lord. Jesus asked him what he wanted. He addressed Jesus as the Lord. You can see it there in verse 41. Well, this was a sign of respect, of course, but it was more than that. It was really a confession of faith. By calling Jesus Lord, the blind man was getting into a right relationship with God. By calling Jesus Lord, he was putting himself in a position to worship and to obey the Savior. And so you see, this blind man could see better than most people. His spiritual acuity was nearly 20-20. Someone once asked Helen Keller, the famous blind social reformer, isn't it terrible to be blind? And she responded by saying, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. You can see that Keller's words are an apt description of this beggar man by the side of the road who for all of his physical blindness had penetrating spiritual insight. And then the last thing the blind man saw, and that was Jesus himself. Or perhaps really we should say that Jesus was the first thing he saw. For by his miraculous power, Jesus made the blind man to see. Jesus opened his eyes, delivering him from his blindness and his beggary. And as soon as his eyes were opened, surely the first person he saw was Jesus, his Lord and his Savior. Now, how did this blind man receive this sight? Well, it's very simple. He received it by grace through faith. Jesus said to him, and this really is the key verse of the passage, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Now, properly speaking, of course, it was... Jesus, who healed the blind man. The blind man had received Jesus by faith, and faith was a sort of channel by which he received his salvation. Listen to these words from B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian. He says, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Let me just read that again. It's so important to understand for the Christian life. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Warfield goes on to say, the saving power resides exclusively not in the act of our faith or in the attitude of our faith or in the nature of our faith, but in the object of our faith, and that is Christ himself. Now, this blind man's faith had all the qualities of saving faith as the Bible describes it. Let me just give you three of its characteristics. These are the characteristics of saving faith. It was a persistent faith. This man did not simply call out to Jesus, but he kept crying for mercy until Jesus stopped and healed him. And since he could not see his way to Jesus, how else could he get the salvation he so desperately needed? He needed to continue to beg for mercy, even after the rest of the crowd told him to shut up. Well, the man may have been blind, but he was not dumb in the sense of not being able to speak. 
No, the more that people tried to quiet him down, the louder he shouted until his cry almost became a desperate shriek. The blind man's persistence was rewarded. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him, and when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? The lesson of this man's example is easy to apply. Oh, there will always be some friends and some family members who try to discourage you from turning to Jesus in faith. Keep crying out for salvation the way the blind man did. Jesus will not pass you by, no. He will stop in the middle of the road and save you completely. Unless the blind man's faith had been persistent, he never would have had the chance to ask Jesus for what he needed. And unless his faith had been personal... He never would have asked the way that he did, Lord, I want to see. You see, the man called directly on Jesus for his salvation. This is the second characteristic of saving faith. It is a personal faith. And this man personally entrusted himself to Christ for his personal healing. You see, God calls everyone to trust personally in his son, Jesus. If you call out to Christ, he will come and become your own personal Savior. Now, I want to take just a few moments and speak further about what I mean by personal faith. Best theologians teach that personal saving faith contains three elements. I realize I'm getting a little more complicated than sometimes I do. I'm giving you three aspects of saving faith, and now I'm taking the second of those. That is the personal nature of saving faith, and I'm further dividing it into these three elements. And they are these, knowledge, belief, and trust. Knowledge, belief, and trust. This blind man, this beggar man, seems to have had all three of these. First, knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is the act of the regenerate mind. To know Christ is to know who he is and what he has done. It is to put some kind of objective content into our faith. What knowledge did this blind man have? Well, he knew that Jesus was the son of David. He perhaps had heard that, had heard that Jesus was of the house and line of David, and he knew that that also meant that Jesus was the Savior. For the Christian, there is more that we can say. There is more that we can put into the knowledge of our faith. We can believe all that the Bible says about God the Son. Believe all that the Bible says about Jesus, that He is God incarnate, that He is fully God as well as fully man. We can believe all of the things that the Bible teaches about His life, about His obedience, about His miracles, and especially about His sufferings and His death. You see, biblical saving faith Personal faith has this aspect of knowledge to it. It is something that we understand with the mind. Although faith begins with the mind, that is not where it ends. Calvin, in his Institutes, wrote that saving faith is not faith that flits about somewhere in the brain, but faith is saving faith that comes to take root deep in the heart. And that brings us to belief, the second element of saving faith. Theologians sometimes call this assent. What it means is accepting the message of salvation, not just knowing what the Bible says about Jesus, but actually accepting it and agreeing that what the Bible says is true. 
not only being convinced in the mind what the Bible says about Jesus and his death and new life is true, but also agreeing with it in the heart and accepting it as a matter of personal belief. And then last of all, there is trust, knowledge, belief, and then trust. Trust is absolute commitment. It is the surrender of the will to Jesus Christ for salvation. Martin Luther said that there is a difference between faith that believes what is said of God is true and faith which throws itself on God. And there you have the difference between belief and trust, faith believing that what is said of God is true, and trust throwing itself on God in trust. There was a missionary to an African tribe who was sitting in his hut struggling to understand how he should define faith, how he should translate the word faith into a particular African tribal language. He wasn't quite sure how to do it. He didn't know if that tribe had an expression that meant faith. While he was wrestling with this question, one of the members of the tribe walked into the hut and threw himself down on a chair, and he used a tribal expression, which means, I am leaning all of my weight on this chair. The missionary jumped to his feet with joy, and he said, that's it. That's the phrase I've been looking for. Faith is leaning all of your weight on Jesus. Faith is a leaning, resting trust. Our own catechism describes it as receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. You see, it takes all three of these elements to have a personal saving faith. You must know in your mind that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe that this is true in your heart. And you must trust it with all of your will for your own salvation. Listen to this definition of faith that comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is true faith? It is not only a certain knowledge by which I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me through the gospel that to me God has given the forgiveness of sins and everlasting righteousness and salvation out of his sheer grace for the sake of Christ's saving work. Now, the last thing to be said about saving faith, which is persistent, which is personal, is that it is also productive. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And the same was true of many of the people there, that when they saw this, they also praised God. You see, this man became a true disciple. As Scripture says, he was a follower of Christ, and that's what a disciple is, someone who follows Christ. You see, this man was not only saved by faith, but he began to live by faith. His faith was a faith that worked. The very first thing that he began to do was the thing that God had created him to do from all eternity, and that is to glorify God. He was praising God for his salvation. Really, that is what God has created us to do as well. From all eternity, he has made us to glorify him. That is why God calls us to have this kind of saving faith, a persistent faith, a faith that we personally embrace, and then which becomes a 
productive faith as we live for Christ and glorify Him in everything that we do. Now, there was also another man who found salvation on the Jericho Road. There was another man who wanted to see Jesus. He wasn't a blind man, but a a wee little man. Zacchaeus is usually known for being vertically challenged, but you know what he was really short on was godliness. And he was more ethically challenged than most. Understand that Jericho was a major center of finance. It was on a major trade route. It was one of three cities in Israel which were the major centers for collecting taxes. That explains why Zacchaeus was so filthy rich. He was the ultimate middleman. He didn't even have to collect the taxes himself. He was the chief tax collector. Other people did all of his dirty work, and then he just skimmed a little bit of the revenue on its way to Rome. He was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. Now, in those days, tax collectors were well known for being swindlers and cheats. That's why Zacchaeus was so unpopular. If you look in verse 7, when all the people saw what Jesus was going to do to go actually and visit Zacchaeus in his home, they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, as the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus was public enemy number one. Why would Jesus associate with such an outcast, such an outsider? It was beneath his dignity. In fact, some would have said that by going to eat at his house, Jesus would have been implicated in the man's crimes. Well, you see, what people didn't understand was this, that the message of salvation is for sinners. You know, we've been saying that almost every week. The message of salvation is for sinners. It's for outcasts. It's for outsiders. It's for swindlers and for cheats. In other words, Zacchaeus was exactly the kind of man that Jesus was looking for. Jesus was looking for low-life sinners. And who better to seek and to save than a man like Zacchaeus? Well, maybe you. Maybe you qualify for the same kind of salvation that Zacchaeus received, because you yourself, really, when it gets right down to it, like I am, are a low-life sinner. Perhaps you are an outsider, an outcast, a swindler, a cheat, or in some other, or maybe in many ways, a sinner. And if that is true, then you are in the right place. Because what I am proclaiming from the Scriptures is that the Son of Man came to seek and to save sinners. And if you know the old Sunday school song, you know what happened next in this story of Zacchaeus. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. It was the ultimate divine appointment, supper with the Savior And we see in this invitation of Jesus, really inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, we see in this the sovereignty of salvation. Oh, Zacchaeus came to look for Jesus, but when it came right down to it, Jesus was the one that stopped and called for Zacchaeus. He was on a mission. He was on a mission to seek and to save. And what he gave to Zacchaeus was not simply an invitation. It was an imperative 
Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. He tells him to come down immediately. He says further that he must come to his house. There is no question about it. There is a real divine urgency about it. And then finally, he says that this must happen today. It is not an appointment that can be put off until tomorrow or until the next week. What Jesus was really doing was calling Zacchaeus to faith and repentance. God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from our sins. This is the call that God gives to every man and to every woman and to every child. Jesus stops in the middle of life's road and he looks up into the tree where we sit and he calls us down. He calls us to believe in him, to exercise saving faith. He calls us to repent for our sins, to exercise repentance unto life. Remember that when we looked at the story of the blind man, we saw that it was mainly about faith, but it was a penitent faith. And here when we look at the salvation of this wee little man, we see it mainly as a story of repentance, but it is a believing repentance. There are several signs of the faith of Zacchaeus. Look how he receives Jesus in verse 6. I suppose when Jesus first looked up and called him by name, he practically fell out of the tree. And by the time he had dusted himself off and stood there on the ground, he gave Jesus the glad welcome of faith. He put his joyous trust in Jesus. He trusted in him personally. Oh, he had heard of Jesus before. I suppose that the word about this man from Nazareth had gotten around the circles that Zacchaeus traveled in. It was well known that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Zacchaeus came to see for himself, and he didn't have to look long. Well, there is a time to sit in the tree, to look at Jesus, to investigate the claims of Christ, but then you see there is a time to get down out of the tree and to call Jesus Lord, as Zacchaeus did, a time to welcome him gladly in the welcome of faith. The real proof of Zacchaeus' faith was his repentance. I want to mention three elements of this repentance. I realize now I've practically given you a nine-point sermon, but really I'm saying only two things, that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and repent for your sins. But what does it mean to repent? Well, we have to give some content to that. Let me just give you three elements of that. First of all, confession. Confession, a full acknowledgement of your sins. This is an exercise of the mind recognizing your sins and being able to list them and to call them by name. Really, that's what Zacchaeus did. People started muttering about him. He realized that what people were saying was right, that he was a sinner. And so he stood up, as we read in verse 8, and he acknowledged, in a way, his sins by explaining what he was going to do to remedy them. He was admitting that he was, in fact, a sinner. He had committed sins of omission. He had not given generously to the poor, surely as every person must. He had committed many sins of commission. He had robbed many people of their money through his fraudulent tax schemes. What we have here, I suppose, is just the summary of what 
he said, but really he was confessing it all. He was confessing all of his dishonesty, all of his cheating, all of his extortion, all of his theft and dishonesty. And repentance always has to include that kind of specific confession for sin. I think of the confession of another man, the Reverend J.W.C. Pennington. And Pennington was a slave. He was an African-American. He had been held on a plantation in Maryland and managed somehow to escape from slavery. And he found himself in the state of New York living in the home of a Presbyterian elder. And Pennington was deeply scarred by the sins that others had inflicted against him. And yet he could not truly become a Christian until he repented for his own sins and recognized that he was not only sinned against, but that he himself was also a sinner. And for a period of about two weeks, day after day, he became more and more convicted of his personal guilt. He describes in his diary mourning for sin, mourning for the wrongs done to him, yes, mourning for the injuries still being carried out against his own brothers. And yet after all of that, deeply convinced, he wrote, of the guilt of my own sins against God. You see, if you would be saved, you must ultimately make that same confession that you yourself, for all the wrongs that have been done to you by others, that you yourself are also a sinner. And then there is contrition. After confession, there is Contrition, it's just a fancy way of saying you have to be sorry for your sins. This is a matter of the heart. The Bible speaks of that godly sorrow for sin which leads to salvation. And true repentance often involves a kind of grief over the shame of sin. And we don't see that so much in Zacchaeus, not specifically, we don't see him shed any tears. But certainly, contrition is part of repentance unto life, and perhaps we have a clue about it here in the glad welcome that Zacchaeus gives to Jesus. Perhaps it was that part of his great joy at greeting Jesus was because of the sorrow of his sins which weighed heavy upon him. The last element of repentance unto life is clearly present in the case of Zacchaeus, and that is change. First confession, and then contrition, and then finally change, real change, real spiritual change, which is a matter of the will. If you have a man who confesses his sins and is somewhat contrite about them, but then doesn't actually change the way that he lives, you may doubt whether he is really saved. Repentance unto life means turning away from sin and unto God. It means living a whole new way of life. You look at the biblical terms for repentance, they are all words that have to do with turning. In the Old Testament Hebrew, the word is shuv. It's a word meaning to turn around or to go back in the other direction. The Bible uses this term to explain how we must turn away from sin and back to God. Or look at the New Testament words, the words in Greek, metanoia and epistrepho. These words overlap to a certain degree, but they both express this idea of turning around and changing directions, whether the change is inward or outward. It was in the outward change where Zacchaeus excelled. It was obvious from his 
life from what he was about to do, that real change had taken place. Right there on the spot, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That word, look, makes it sound as if right then and there, Zacchaeus was already starting to empty his pockets to pull out his money bags and to start to distribute them among the crowd. Just in an instant, he was divesting himself of the wealth it had taken him years to accumulate. And from that moment forward, he was a changed man. Zacchaeus really planned to make amends. What he was offering to do was above and beyond what the law required. He was going to give half of his money to the poor. Whereas the Old Testament law required no more than one-fifth, but he was going to go up to 50%. You know, what a man or a woman does with his or her wealth is a good indication of his or her spiritual condition. Zacchaeus may have been a small man, but he had deep pockets once he had come to faith and repentance. And he was going to be generous in the way that he treated the poor. Then, too, he was going to give back four times the amount that he had defrauded people of. That, too, was more, strictly speaking, than the law required. This was going to cost a fortune. But, you know, that is what it takes to get a camel through the eye of a needle. We have to understand the story of Zacchaeus against the background of what happened in chapter 18. Remember, there was the story there of another rich man who came to Jesus. You can see it in chapter 18, verse 23. He was a man of great wealth, and Jesus told him to sell everything he had and to give it to the poor. The man refused to do it, and Jesus remarked how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than that. Those who were standing there were amazed by this. They had assumed that riches were a sign of sure salvation. But Jesus said it was not so. And when he told them that even the rich could not be saved for all their riches, they said, who then can be saved? Jesus gave them this answer, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What greater proof of that statement of God making the impossible possible than the life of Zacchaeus. Only God could take a rich little thief like Zacchaeus and give him the gift of repentance and turn his back towards God. You see, that is what it takes for us to be saved, we must receive these gifts of faith and repentance. And if you ask, which of these must come first? I say it doesn't matter. There is no faith without repentance. Believing means admitting that you are a sinner. There is no repentance without faith. How can you repent for your sins without trusting that it is in the heart of God to forgive sinners? You see, what really matters is to come to Christ, believe in Christ, repent for your sins, repent for your sins, believe in Christ, either way. If you want to see Jesus, you must look to him in faith the way the blind man did. If you want to have salvation come to your house the way that it came to the house of Zacchaeus, you must turn away from your sin. And if you believe If you repent, then surely you will be saved.
The very reason that Jesus came was to seek and to save those who are lost. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for these gifts of faith and repentance. And we ask for them now. We know that the whole Christian life is a life of believing and repenting. We need you to do this work by your Spirit in our hearts, enabling us to trust, really rest in Christ, and enabling us to confess with real contrition our sins. And we ask that you would save us, as you have promised to save us, through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.